MSW Media. Prevail. C'est une programme pro politique. Histoire, la sécurité nationale. Crimen organisado, dinero sucio. Global corruption. Ta brutpou sa démocratie. Et ahora, ATP. Et maintenant, comme ustedes, su anfitrion. Welcome back to the fight. This time I know our side will win. I'm Greg Oliar. This is Prevail. Welcome to the program. Please join me in thanking our new sponsor, America's number one meal kit, HelloFresh. Go to HelloFresh.com slash 50Prevail and use code 50PREVAIL for 50% off plus 15% off the next two months. We've got a great show. Zarina Zabriskie is here. Zarina needs no introduction, but I'm going to give her one anyway. Um, right now, she is podcasting. She's doing interviews for Malcontent News. They have a great podcast. She's involved with that. She made a film with some other colleagues called Under Deadly Skies, a documentary about the war in Ukraine. Um, she writes for the Byline Times. You can follow her work on the site formerly known as Twitter for as long as it lasts. And right now, she's one of only two journalists in Kherson, which is a city um, in southern Ukraine, sort of southern eastern Ukraine on the mouth of the Dnipro River. And she's written about this for Prevail uh, a couple times. She reported on it and told stories about Kherson when it was occupied by Russia. And then she wrote a great piece when it was liberated because she was there when it was liberated. So what happened is that, uh, you know, the Russians came in, they held it for nine months, they were pushed back out across the river. And now they're going scorched earth on the place, which is what, you know, the Russians do. If they can't have anything, they want nobody to be able to have it. And they just try to destroy everything kind of indiscriminately. So this is a city that's you know, it's the size of Pittsburgh, St. Louis, Lubbock, Texas. It's a mid-sized city. Um, 280,000 people live there. And the Russians are trying to wipe it off the map. That's what they're trying to do, um, which they've done to other cities, you know, farther in the east, Mariupol and other places, uh, just make it uninhabitable so that the people who are living there either leave or die and that there's nothing left. And Zarina is on hand. She's on the ground there. She's talking to people who live there and trying to get this word out to the rest of the world about what's happening and what the Russians are up to there, which is, you know, obviously horrifying. So as we talk about this um, in the interview, the geography is important. And I want to make sure that everybody kind of understands, because something that wasn't clear to me is that Kherson Oblast, which is sort of the larger uh, place, kind of like, as she says in the interview, it's like New York City, New York State, right? Um, most of Kherson Oblast is on the other side of the river from where Kherson is proper. Um, and the Russians are on that side of the river, not where the city is. So I think that's important in understanding kind of what's happening because they're shelling the city from across the river. That's what's going on right now. So I wanted to have her on because it's important to shed light on what's happening in Ukraine because I think we forget. Obviously, there's so much news going on. Um, but it ties into everything, you know, it ties into everything that's happening right now here in the U.S. 
and we've had two big deals in the House of Representatives in the last couple of weeks. There was the shutdown or the, you know, the almost shutdown where these asshole Republicans were trying to, you know, grind the government to a halt and refuse to sign these spending bills. Um, Republicans in the Senate were okay with it. And it was the House and Kevin McCarthy that refused. And the main thing, ultimately, after all the dust was settled, is that they did not want any more money going to help Ukraine. That was the one thing that they demanded above all else. They didn't want any more aid to Ukraine. So when you listen to this podcast and to the interview with Zarina and she talks about what the Russians are doing there, keep that in mind. Because by not giving aid to Ukraine, these Republicans are basically siding with Putin, right? They're siding with Russia. They clearly want Russia to win. And they can say whatever they want. They can make excuses about it. Somebody like Rand Paul is always talking about peace. We need peace. Um, Russia has invaded. So if there's a ceasefire or any attempt of peace, they're just going to keep the territory that they, that they have right now. Why would Ukraine agree to that? Also, Putin doesn't pay any attention to treaties. He signs the treaties and then immediately violates them. You can't negotiate with somebody like that. So the only way that this war is going to end is if Russia just leaves. It's really that simple. It's always been that simple. The war is happening because Putin wants it to happen. And if he pulls back, the war will be over. It's that simple. The Republicans in Congress do not want the United States to continue helping Ukraine because they know that the Ukrainians will win. They will prevail if they have the proper aid. But what does that tell you? Now, Kevin McCarthy, because he wasn't extreme enough, has been vacated. That's the word uh, that they're using, vacated. It sounds like, you know, voiding the bowels or something, right? He's vacated. Uh, and now there is no functional Speaker of the House. So the entire House of Representatives is in disarray, again, because of the Republicans and these. And why is it in disarray? Why are the Republicans mad? Because of the Ukraine aid piece. That's what it's all about. So, you know, who's the new Speaker of the House going to be? I don't know. But maybe they should just put Putin in there and eliminate the middleman. Because basically they're doing his work. And they have been for seven years now, if not longer. And it's a disgrace. And again, when you listen to the interview and hear what's going on over there, this is behavior that Republicans are endorsing. This is what they're endorsing. A psychopath indiscriminately shelling apartment buildings, churches, hospitals, hotels, infrastructure that people need to live. Not soldiers, not military, regular people. They're trying to wipe a city off the face of the earth. That's what they're trying to do. And, you know, Matt Gates and Kevin McCarthy and these other Republicans obviously have no problem with that. They have no problem with it. So... That's what they're about. They've told us what they're about. That's what they're about. And I just think it's awful and disgraceful. And I want people to make that connection that the only reason that shutdown happened is because of the Ukraine aid piece. And you have to ask, why was that so important to Kevin McCarthy, to Matt Gates, to Donald Trump? Why? Why were they helping Putin so much? I think we all know the answer. We'll be right back with Zarina Zabriskie. 
McHenry's allowed and McCarthy was speaker. McCarthy is out and McHenry's the speaker. America waits because of Matt Gates, a loser and traitor who everyone hates. Oh, McHenry's allowed and McCarthy was speaker. McCarthy is out and McHenry's the speaker. America waits because of Matt Gates, a loser and traitor who everyone hates. Zarina Zabriskie, welcome back to Prevail. Hi. Hi, Greg. How are you doing? Um, I'm better than you, I'm sure. You are, you're calling in. It's late at night where you are. You're in eastern Ukraine, uh, somewhere in the in the area of Kherson. It's actually southern Ukraine. Okay. And I'll be happy to tell you all the details of this unique geographical position because it is actually important. I was going to, I was actually, it's funny you say that because I've drawn a map on my paper here and I was going to tell that to the listeners who don't know, you know, about the geography. And the more I think that we learn about Ukraine here in the United States, uh, you know, I think the key to understanding it is to understand the geography. So Kherson is on the mouth kind of of the Dnipro River, which kind of snakes upward and separates eastern Ukraine, which is kind of this bridge to Crimea. Right. It comes down into Crimea um, on the other side of the river. Uh, yes, there's actually this is absolutely true. But there is much more to this as one learns once one is here. OK, so I'd like to add to this description because you're absolutely right, Greg. The Dnipro River, which is the third largest river in Europe, starts in Russia as a very small rivulet, goes all the way through Belarus, and then exactly goes into the Black Sea. And uh, Kherson is very close to the Black Sea right. here on the Dnipro River. And uh, the importance of this position cannot be uh, or, or un underestimated uh, because on the one hand, there is Crimea, the Crimean Peninsula, as most of us know, annexed by the Russian Federation in 2014. And the control over Kherson will directly influence who has control over Crimea. But on the other side, on the uh, right bank of the river, as they call it, or the western one, where I am now, um, is sort of like a launch pad potential for the Russian Federation military to go to the critical seaports of Mikolaev and Odessa, and as they have discussed in the beginning of the war, further on to the uh, Russian proxy state in a way, Transnistria and Moldova, and from there, you know, the the sky is the limit because that that goes all the way to Europe. But well, let's not get too excited about it, but they definitely aimed for Mikolaev and Odessa that are critical seaports on the Black Sea. Okay. Yeah, because I listened to your interview that you did on your podcast. What's the, what's the name of the podcast? It's the Malcontent News. I started quite recently in September, and I think they're in the process of rebranding. So there will be some other names soon, but I, I, I don't know it yet. Okay. But for now, it's the Malcontent News, and they do very decent daily reports, sort of what I used to do for Euromaidan, but they have the whole team working on it, thankfully. So I don't do that. I'm taking a break from daily reviews, and I do interviews with all possible 
experts, interesting people, Ukrainian voices, experts on Ukraine, you name it. So, yeah, I listened to the one you had Ben Hodges on, who was a retired U.S. general. That was pretty interesting. Um, I went down this this rabbit hole about uh, about Crimea lately. I, I interviewed um, someone from SIPA who's an ex who's from Crimea and is now studying it and reporting on the war and stuff, for, you know, from Washington and uh, listen to your podcast, learning about it. And the consensus seems to be that Crimea is really what Russia wants ultimately, where, you know, if to secure Crimea and make sure that they keep it is the most important thing to them ultimately. Um, is that your sense as well? I know that's what Hodges said, but that, that appears to be, and if you look at the map, all the territories that they're in the process of of either destroying or you know whatever they're doing lead down to Crimea and seem to create a pathway from Russia to Crimea. So is that what you think is happening? Yes, and you have to understand also, Greg, that we're talking about more of symbolic meaning than strategic, okay. because it's not like Russia doesn't have enough land. Yeah. It is literally the biggest country in the world. And as a person who traveled around this land, I can tell you that a big part of it is completely uninhabited and up for grabs. They don't experience the uh, pressing need to to have more lands. That is just not the case. The same goes for the natural resources. They have natural resources. They have gas and they have oil, as most people know in this world. And the Crimea is not going to offer any of this. However, Crimea has always been, and perhaps at least for now is, and might still be, what they call the jewel um, in the Russian empire's crown. And I didn't come up with this brilliant description. I think my friend Phil Itner, a uh, journalist uh, I know for many, many years said, but maybe somebody else did. Anyway, it's going around. It's kind of archetypal. Uh, because not one Russian ruler um, has managed to have any major uh, gains, whether in terms of land or just victories in the war, and lose Crimea. Because Crimea was always contested. Yeah. It's this wonderful uh, land, like a paradise. I, I used to spend a lot of time there as a kid, because remember, I had Ukrainian background, so my parents would take me first to Odessa, and when the Odessa family died, I spent a lot of summers in Crimea, and I know it very, very well. And it, it is really a paradise. It's amazingly beautiful. There are grapevines everywhere. They make wine and cognac. The sea is warm. There are dolphins. Um there's what not. It's very rich in history, in mythology, in many uh, ethnicities live there and fight for it, you know, historically all the time. So for, for Russia, it has more of a symbolic meaning than anything else. Donbass is an entirely different story. It's a very yeah. impoverished uh, place where the mines are not working anymore. Just more of a problem than a place. Uh, and uh Russia wants it more of stubbornness than of anything else. It's a symbol of uh, the Soviet period of of the whole, you know, R Russian empire history, right? And the Crimea is just this heavenly place that everybody always wanted. And Catherine the Great, 
who in many ways is a role model for Putin, who is from St. Petersburg. So Catherine the Great built a lot there, and she basically built the empire following into Peter the first steps. And that's what Putin wants. And that's why uh, Crimea is so wanted. And what Ben Hodges was saying, and you're absolutely right about it, he's been saying it for, for a long time, for at least a year, that Crimea being a peninsula very easily could be turned into a trap. And when people speak about the slow counteroffensive, which is driving me crazy in a way, uh, they don't take in consideration that it's really not about the inches of liberated soil uh, that is oftentimes scorched, and we will be talking about it in a second, but it's about, say, destroying the logistical chains of supply for Russians. They, right. they, it's about it's about destroying the Russian fleet. Uh, it's about destroying the Russian army so it cannot attack anymore. It's it's strategy, not just a computer game where little uh, squares land are being moved here and uh, there. Uh, but the reason we talk about this geography is uh, because Kherson is really of utmost critical strategic importance for the Russians, who in the very beginning of the war captured it, as you know. Right. Uh, that was the first major city that they seized practically without a battle, if you don't count the minor skirmishes uh, with the territorial defense, because the Ukrainian army did not expect this move. They had to retreat. And there are a number of interesting stories that I'll be happy to share about what was happening here in the beginning of the war. But for those who are not familiar with Kherson, uh, this city, very briefly, in a nutshell, what happened? The Russian uh, army attacked for most people suddenly on the 24th of February, 2022, moved across the river through Antonievsky Bridge and into Kherson. And after a week of chaos, Kherson was occupied by the Russians. Uh, the Russians um, established terror. They didn't expect any resistance. They thought that they would be greeted with flowers and mm -hmm. bread and salt. They were not. Uh, there were this massive rallies of pro-Ukrainian anti-Russians. And so instead, the Russians established the uh, terror and violence regime where people were arrested anywhere they went. Most people just stayed at home uh, for no fault, for just looking at your phone, for whatever. There were at least four major torture chambers that were discovered after Kherson was liberated. Uh, people knew that their friends, their families were arrested, tortured, killed. There were all kinds of horror stories going on there. I'm not going to go into that. And that was nine, almost nine months of that. When in November, November 11th, uh, because of the brilliant move of the Ukrainian strategist, they distracted uh, the Russians, they kept talking about the liberation of Kherson, and then instead they moved in the Kharkov direction. And so the Russians had to focus there and move their resources. And meanwhile, the Ukrainians moved and pushed them back in the Kharkov area, which is uh, in the north, in the very north of Ukraine. And at the same time, they attacked and in Kherson in the south, and Russians had to retreat from across the river. And so it was a lot of joy. We discussed that. We talked about that. I was here in Kherson during the liberation. Uh, what happened then 
immediately on the day of liberation, when Zelensky came to greet the city, the Russians started to shoot and shell and attack Kherson that very day. And they never stopped. And it accelerated and it accelerated and it accelerated. And what happened then in June, so we're talking from November till June, the city tried to recover, but they were killed by few people, civilians every day. The buildings were destroyed. And then on June 6, the Russians, as we now know, blew up the Novokohovka Dam, uh, hydroelectric power dam. And there was a major flood that is now considered by many scientists and by the Ukrainian government uh, environment and uh, catastrophe and ecocide. Uh, and there was a major flood. Lots of people uh, died, probably up in the hundreds. We don't know the numbers because on the left side, where the Russians are, they didn't disclose any numbers. They concealed uh, the casualties. They were not letting rescuers and volunteers to the place where people were drowning. Uh, we only know of the victims and casualties on this side. Uh, a lot of People suffered. A lot of households were completely destroyed. Uh, the dam is not can be rebuilt. Now it's stated. And there was major, major damage to the environment. So that added to all the hardship that Kherson already had. Many people left. Uh, businesses closed uh, with daily uh, attacks. There've been closure every day. And there are no jobs, no money in the city. And we have arrived here 10 days ago, and just at the time, the attacks intensified to a somewhat uh, unbelievably, almost ridiculous amount. I've never seen anything like this, and I've been in Ukraine for almost two years. Uh, there are explosions sometimes every five minutes, sometimes there's an hour of silence, and then they start again. And in the middle of September, the Russians started to drop air bombs on the city. And uh, this is something else. I knew that air bombs were the worst because I was, uh, they're called guided aerial bombs, or here they're called cubs. And uh, when I was in Chernihiv Oblast, that's in the northeast reporting, I've uh, visited those completely destroyed villages where the residents told me that nothing is worse than the aerial bomb because it's gigantic. It's like, 500 kilograms of metal that is flying at you. You can't escape. It can't be intercepted. There's no air defense can, that can stop it. This is just, if it's flying at you, it's the end. And I've seen the results of it. I've seen the craters. And that's what the Russians started to do here because uh, we're only in some places about five kilometers away across the river, sometimes more. And the river is covered with the reed beds on both sides, where people can hide very easily on both sides. So there's saboteurs on both sides. And at night, you hear the Kalashnikovs, you hear machine guns, you hear mortar, and they use all of these smaller firearms, and they use artillery, heavy artillery, MLRS, Grad, which is an old Soviet one. Yesterday, we found uh, a Grad uh, rocket made in 1962, Greg, hmm. in the Soviet Union. There was a stamp on it, and it completely destroyed a roof on the hotel, which was still somewhat operational. 
and they they are targeting civilian places, critical infrastructure. Yesterday we uh, took a little tour of the newly destroyed places and among them there was a ukrainian orthodox church a cathedral part of it was destroyed and then another rocket went into the basement of auxiliary building and it didn't detonate it was just sitting there as we were there like you could see through the big hole you see that and there's not enough police to attend to all of this because it's happening everywhere all the time and um, uh, so there are, there are cafes, there are stores, there are supermarkets. They, they, there would be a part of rocket of this grad sticking out from the uh, pavement. Um, I went to see the crater from the aerial bomb the other day. Uh, I have photographs on Twitter if somebody is more visual. And today when I was writing an article about all of this, uh, as I typed, uh, Russians being in close proximity to at this point, the walls shook and the doors opened because of the shockwave, because another aerial bomb was dropped in the neighborhood nearby, and there were eight injured and one killed. And it's just ongoing. You hear at night, they do a lot of it at night because it's a psyop as well. They right. want to demoralize the population so we couldn't sleep. A lot of people adjusted and sleep, but a lot don't. And uh, I usually sleep through anything. But last night I woke up because because it was so loud. You hear the whistle, it goes like this. And you don't know where this dish will be. Yeah. As you listen for the second, as you're half asleep, and you think like, okay, there's a window right here. Should I just like go and locate, you know, like move under the bed? Or they say between two walls, the rule of two walls. Like, but at that point, you know, at five, four fifty in the morning it was the uh the, the bathroom, which is the safest place, is so far and it's so dark, and all they want to do just sleep. And it's like, oh you and you just go to bed and so what, what i will say and then i'll pass it back to you they are doing here their scorched earth strategy that's what the russians have been doing way back in history i actually looked it up and they started it with uh in the war with sweden uh i actually forgot the date you're a better historian than i am i think it was in 1700s uh, or 1800s i think yeah 1700s i'm pretty sure and then obviously during the napoleonic war that's a very well known right. incident accident happening uh but because when napoleon captured moscow it was empty and it was burning uh and they they were doing this to fight invaders fair enough you know uh, in world war 1 they used it uh, in some of the fronts and then during world war 2 when the nazi germany attacked they used it a lot but then they turned it around and they used it in Afghanistan. They used it in two Chechen wars. And most infamously, they used it in Syria, in, in Aleppo, and all the other places which they raised from the face of earth. And during the Ukrainian uh, war of aggression, during the Russian war of aggression in Ukraine, rather, uh, we know of a number of places. Uh, people heard about Mariupol in Donetsk. There are places like Severodonetsk, Popasna, uh, Volnovakha, and many other, Avdiivka, Marinka, that don't exist anymore. And I've seen some of them. And I've seen these villages here in Kherson Oblast, which region, which were already destroyed. And now they're doing it systematically 
And what's worse, or what is what makes it worse, and what makes it even more of a hybrid war in the matter of geopolitics is because it's not being reported. It's very hard to get a permit to be here for a foreign journalist. It takes a lot of time. And for those journalists who are not based here, like myself and my colleagues, it takes too long to wait. Most publications don't have that amount of money and don't have that much time, and they don't make it here. So all of this is happening in silence. The world is unaware. And I I feel like this is my goal now, is to break the story through, to make the world see and hear. There's a big city that is being destroyed right now. There's a lot to there's a lot to unpack with what you just said, and I want to get I want I want to go back and and review a lot of the things you said so that it, it 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 sticks for everybody listening and it and it sticks for me. Before we do, let's just get this out of the way. We have to take a quick break. We'll be right back with Zarina Zabriskie. So last week I came home from work and I'm thinking, what am I going to make for dinner? And I open the door and what's waiting for me in the vestibule? But a package from HelloFresh. You know, I mean, when it comes to options for dinner, honestly, more is more. The HelloFresh menu includes 40 recipes and over 100 add-on items to choose from every week. I don't know if you're familiar with HelloFresh, but it has everything you need like right there. So all you have to do is open up the box and like start cooking. It's wonderful. In my case, I got these <laughs> these tacos, which they, the meat is so good that they have. And I put them with peppers and everything. And uh, they gave me cabbage and I was gonna make this cabbage. And I thought, I don't know if I like cabbage. I'm gonna try this, but I, I followed the recipe exactly. And these, <laughs> these tacos were so good that I ate like five of them. Like I gorged myself on these delicious HelloFresh tacos. Um, and now I learned how to cook them. I learned that, you know, cabbage is good. Who knew, right? You should totally try it. If you go to hellofresh.com slash 50 prevail and use code 50 prevail, get 50% off plus 15% off the next two months. Kickstart a fresh fall routine with HelloFresh. HelloFresh handles all the meal planning and shopping to deliver everything you need to cook up a tasty meal right at home. They do the hard part and you get to take all the credit. You know, if you ever wish you can spend less time planning, shopping, cooking for the family, and more time with them, from easy time-saving breakfasts and family dinners to kid-approved lunches and snacks, HelloFresh has what it takes to keep everyone, including you, happy and satisfied. When you get HelloFresh, you know you're getting top-notch products since it travels from the farm to your door in less than seven days. And I can attest this, the meat is like really good. You know, because sometimes you go to the, the, the store in your town and you buy the chopped meat and it's a little bit sus, as the kids say. Not here. This is like really good stuff. High quality stuff. You know, you don't have to go to the... Sometimes I go to the supermarket and I buy things and then they wind up going bad because I don't know what who's going to eat what. So this also eliminates that problem. It's just a wonderful thing. And I, I highly recommend it. I'm so delighted that they're sponsoring the show. Um, I couldn't ask for a better sponsor. So uh, I, I encourage you to try it. It's really great. Um, go to HelloFresh.com slash 50Prevail and use code 50Prevail for 50% off plus 15% off the next two months. HelloFresh. Delicious. It's really good. Try it. Trust me. Okay, we're back with Zarina Zabriskie. You are, and I, I can't remember if we said this up front, you're one of only two journalists in Kherson. So 
what you said before is, you know, this is a story that's gone unreported. Yeah, it's gone unreported because nobody's there. Other than people on the ground, you know, people that live there, there's nobody there. Um, I remember with Mariupol, it was the same thing. There was one photographer left there and all of those images came from him. Kherson is a city that I don't know what now what the population is, but before the invasion, the population was something on the order of 280,000 people, which means it's the same size roughly as St. Louis or Buffalo or Pittsburgh, St. Paul, Reno, Nevada, Lubbock, Texas. It's not a huge city, but it's big. It's not small. Um, and there's a lot of people there. And there is no it, it, it feels like, you know, what you said, the strategic importance of having that place helps the Russians with uh, their ultimate goal, I think, of of securing that that jewel of the empire there with the with Crimea. But it doesn't feel like they're hitting military bases or anything like that. Their their method, as you said, is just to destroy everything in sight, um, which they've done before and which you're watching happening. And. You know, as we as we discuss this, it is uh, it's October third. It's Tuesday afternoon. Um, this is now a couple of days from what happened in in Nagorno Karabakh, uh, where the Azeris went in there. Uh, you know, to this place that had been contested, where Armenians had been living uh, for I don't know since the nineties, and basically, you know, ran them out. And a hundred thousand out of one hundred and twenty thousand Armenians just fled. And it feels like. Um, the Russians are hoping to do something similar here, just to hit all these places, make them uninhabitable, so the people either die or just flee and get out of there. Do you think that's accurate, or is that what is their purpose here? I mean, what you know, they're blowing up stuff that they 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 hope to one day control. Well, first of all, um, that, that's a very good, as usual, with you, Greg, analysis. But I wouldn't make this parallels with Nagorno-Karabakh because it's an entirely different area with very complicated, convoluted history. And uh, as far as I know, and I'm definitely not an expert, in the 90s, Armenians actually came to live there. Yeah. Um, so there are different ways of looking at it, and I'm not going to 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 do that. I don't mean because, I don't mean yeah. the, the just to clarify. I don't mean the ethnic stuff. I mean the military operation, which is just they're going to go in there and everyone's going to leave. It feels like that's what the Russians want in Kherson. Looking at it, yeah, yeah. Well, hence goes the scorched earth strategy because it's Russians didn't invent it. It's a military strategy which has been used by Scythians, you know, and by Romans. Mm -hmm. And it, what it does, it it involves um, the deliberate destruction of virtually all resources resources of value to an enemy, and it could include vital resources like water, food animals, vegetation, infrastructure, and uh, it could be done, the strategy could be used either by an army that retreats and, and it leaves nothing valuable for the advancing enemy. Like in Bakhmut, right before the Russians left, they completely destroyed, destroyed it, or Marinka. Or it could be used by an advancing army uh, so it can counter the movement you know, of the adversary. So, uh, you know, if you cut the communication networks, blow up bridges, uh, then electrical power stations are out, uh, there, there, it's much harder to move along. And then, of course, the population is forced to move away. And 
then as a result, there's nothing left there, nothing to contest, really. And it's like in a more simple terms, like if I can't have it, nobody will have it. Yeah. That sort of thing. And here in Kherson, it's very, very obvious because they had it. The Russians had Kherson. Right. They had to leave. And in a way, it is also, it's a strategy, but it's also a revenge because Russians are playing a very emotional, like kind of psychopathic war here. So there's a lot of revenge and fury that goes into destruction of Kherson. And a part of it, frankly, is something that we just can't understand because we are not psychopaths. We we are not war criminals. We don't torture people in chambers. Uh, why do they do it? I think there will be generations of psychologists who would be looking into it and who would be looking into the real um, reasons or rather causes of it. Yeah. Um, you know, but again, just to just to restate there, this is a, a medium sized city that is, you know, people live there. You know, families live there, children live there. there. There's places of business, there's houses of worship. And the Russians are just basically blowing up apartment buildings and churches and hospitals and hotels. And uh, these are not military things. They're not military targets. It's just destruction and chaos uh, for the sheer purpose of, you know, like you said, we don't know. We're not psychopaths. But to create fear and uh, demoralize the people that live there, which, you know... I think in Ukraine, that strategy has not worked very well for the Russians. You know, uh, every time that they hit, the Ukrainians seem to be more and more resolved and, and resolute um, in their, um, you know, desire to stand up for themselves, which is nice to see. Um, I mean, what's the where is this headed? Are, is this now the main target there? Are they really just going to keep doing this until it's completely destroyed like the other places? What do you think is going to happen? Like, is there, can they move in defenses? Because I know that they're, you know, some of these countries in Europe are bringing things over. Now there's the new things that they're getting from Washington eventually that I forget what it's called, but it has the capability to fly, to send missiles further out than they're able to do now, basically into Crimea and the ports. You know, what's your sense? Well, yes, it's a very difficult question. Uh, from what I understand from my interviews with military experts, from studying, you know, for my daily reviews, uh, because I'm certainly not a military expert and I never will be, but I can just sum up what I heard from, from the good ones and also based on what I see, just some common sense knowledge. Uh, the front line is extremely long it's a very long front line so the the battle is going throughout this line okay. everywhere so it's it's almost like this alive being that it's always moving and there's always something happening so just um looking at one tiny little piece is almost doing a disservice to what Ukrainian army is achieving here, like working on the counteroffensive. It's just, it's, it's like, you know, it's like draw me a whale. I could draw just a little cartoon whale for a three-year-old, but we will still know that there is like all this living being with cells and neurons and nervous system. That That's pretty much how I feel. That's why I'm at loss 
for words because I I, I don't want to um, just simplify it terribly to this. But with Kherson, uh, Russians, from everything I know, don't have the capability to move back across the river because the bridges are uh, blown up. Ponton bridges they will try to bring. Uh, but just as the Russians see Ukrainians, Ukrainians see the Russians. Uh, they are not going to be able, from everything I know, to build this pontoon bridges, temporary bridges, because Ukrainians have long-range uh, weapons and they're going to hit them. Ukrainians are not just sitting here watching uh, Kherson being destroyed. They're fighting back. So without the bridges, uh, they can't cross the river, which is still a wide river. Yeah. And can't cross it in the boats because everybody sees the boats. The drones are, are flying everywhere. You see, like you open up uh, the balcony door and you see drones flying. You know the Shahid, and these, and you see the little green uh, light. You know something in between a firefly and Great Gatsby. You know the green <laughs> light. So it's not as romantic. Yeah, that's the reality here. The other day I wanted a bounty chocolate bar and I opened, like, look through my bags and I opened, oh, here it is. And it, oh, no, it's not. It's a piece of the uh, Russian aerial bomb that I got from the site. <laughs> so, uh, but the, the drones are here and they see what's going on. They won't let the Russian, well, not fleet, but boats of any sort cross Dnipro. The amphibian uh groups you know with the underwater um scenario very unlikely also it's getting colder it's been very very warm but this week it started to get colder and eventually there will be rains which will make every movement more difficult at the front and then the winters are very harsh here i've been here last winter it's snowing it's ice it's very very cold but it's not icy enough for anybody to cross the river on feet either so uh, the river is really a natural obstacle and that that's why it's also difficult for uh ukrainians to cross it they have the same problems plus Plus, when the Russians were retreating, they left, and it's a part of the scorched earth uh, strategy, uh, mines everywhere. So yeah. they, uh, everything outside of Kherson is heavily mined. When you drive across the, the road, you see the signs, mines, mines, mines. And it, it's one of the most mined areas in the world. It will take decades to demine it. Uh, so, yeah, I don't think the Russians will come back. So because they can't come back, they're still close enough to attack it from the air. And because the air defense can fight against the aerial bombs, it's too close to intercept it the way in Odessa, in Kiev, when other areas, uh, say, um, drones are being intercepted and taken down. It just It's more like Kharkov, where the border is so close that it's almost too late to do anything when, when the shell is flying towards you. So what will happen? I don't know. I, I think I'm convinced knowing Ukrainians, seeing their resilience, seeing how hard they fight, and knowing how demoralized and disorganized the Russian troops are, I think eventually there will be a way to push them back. I think that Crimea will be taken. I actually don't doubt it. I just don't know when 
Yeah. Thank you for that. Now, if I'm hearing correctly, if I'm understanding it correctly, Russian troops are on basically the western side of the river as opposed to the eastern. The eastern side of the of the Dnipro River is the kind of landmass that comes down to Crimea. The western side is where Kherson is. Is that right? Or I, do I have it backwards? Well, they call it here. The right and the left. Not making yeah. for anyone. It's right and left. Okay. The Russians are on the right, but that now they've come over to the left and they can't get back. Is that what's happening? No. So we. I'm currently on the right. You're on I'm the right. The Ukrainian okay. territory. We're on the right side of history. We're on the yeah. right side uh, of Kherson. Okay. That's how it's easy to remember. Uh, the Russians are on the left side, which is e- east. You know, like if you look at it, this is east, this is west. Okay. So I'm on the west side, but they never call it this way. So, uh, b- but basically, if you look, if you look at the map and you see Dnipro going up, cutting through Ukraine, that that their description is clear. The right is the one leading through the land. Uh, corridor to Crimea. Okay, that's yeah. where we have Litopol, Berdyansk, uh, and further on there is Zaporizhia, which is a very hot part right now as well, because that's where a lot of battles are happening, and that's where the uh, nuclear power plant is. Right, and if the Russians are to use the scorched earth strategy in full, they have Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, which can be very easily turned into a dirty bomb which they have been threatening to do all along. Well, there, there's a there's now a resolution in the in the US government that if they do that they activate the NATO powers for what it's worth. That would be lovely. Yeah. I, if the voice of reason ever resonates in Russian ears that that would be terrific. Yeah. But I, I'm not sure it does though. So So I guess what I'm getting at is are the Russian soldiers in Kherson trapped? Are they on the, the incorrect side of the river and they need to get across the river to escape? Or are they just shooting at Kherson from across the river? No, no, no. They are not in Kherson. Okay. They're, so we're talking, let's clarify. I know it's complicated and thank you for being there. Thank you everyone for trying to understand. Let's let's get it together. So there's the city of Kherson, mm-hmm. which was captured in the beginning of the war and which is liberated. It was liberated almost a year ago in November 2022. The city of Kherson is in the Kherson region or Kherson Oblast. It's sort of like, you know, the city of New York in the state of New York, right? right? Yeah, so it's like an egg, the York and the egg, right? So the region is the, the white of the egg and the yellow is the city. So there are no Russian soldiers in the city of Kherson. They've been pushed back across the river. Well, imagine London, right? There's the Thames going, the Big Ben. We are on the side of Big Ben. And on the other side, there are enemies shooting at you. Okay. That's pretty much how it is. Okay, gotcha. I get it now. So Russians occupied at this moment only a part of Kherson region. And they not they didn't just occupy it. They called a referendum, and then they annexed this area along with the Parisian Donetsk and Luhansk, and pronounced it a part of Russia. Right. They said Russia is here forever. They said it about the city of Kherson too, but then they were kicked out in a few weeks. <laughs> so that was uh, we know that. Uh, but they are there. The Russian soldiers are there, and that's 
where they fight at us, where they fire at us from. And I've I've been to the bank many, many times, and even recently, although it's extremely dangerous, you can't come to the water. For one thing, the journalists are not allowed to film for a good reason, so we don't go to the water. But we've been helping volunteers to deliver humanitarian aid to houses, and you see it from the window, and like from the window of our uh, apartment from from the my colleague's room, you could actually see through the river. Okay. Um, now you mentioned before the slow counteroffensive, and I want to, you know, just pull back an, on a grand scale and, and overgeneralize here about just wars and invasions and stuff. And we knew this in the beginning when when Putin first invaded, he thought the thing was going to be over in three days. Uh, the the soldiers that went in had like dress uniforms with them so they could have a parade in Kiev and they didn't have any logistical planning. So when you're invading another country, um, logistics, which are important in wartime anyway, I mean, you know, more important really than anything, become even more important. And you require, um, you know, an awful lot of uh, soldiers and military forces and, you know, logistical things that actually work in order to even hold whatever territory you take. It's not enough to just waltz in. You have to then control it forever. And it's very, very hard to do that. Just not Russia and Ukraine, just anybody, right? If you stop and think about it. Um, Russia has not done a great job with any of, of these facets of things. The only advantage they have really is that they have a lot of people that they can draw from and and you know and send to their death. Um, you know, because Putin's such a stand-up guy, he just doesn't care. Um, you know, psychopath. So when you mentioned the counteroffensive and you talked before about it's not always um, territory on a map, it's really hitting at these logistical things. So I'm looking at, you know, the I that, that to me is why Kherson is so important, because it is a strategically an important place because it's at the mouth of the, of the river, which leads down to the Black Sea and then Crimea is right there. And then um, I think that the Kerch Bridge, I know that they've been hitting at that. If you look at the map of Crimea, the north part, there, there's the, the the little isthmus that connects it to Ukraine uh, is on one side. And then there's a bridge sort of on the eastern side that connects it to Russia. And I, it, I'm actually surprised that bridge still exists. But um, they have not been able to send missiles to Crimea yet because they, they don't have the capability to send them that far, as I understand it. And now the U.S. has authorized these new weapons that are coming. I don't think they're there yet that will be able to do that. They've done some sabotage stuff in the Black Sea also. I don't know. It feels like well, uh, the, the slow counteroffensive feels like it's working, is my point. Well, it is not. Uh, and I'll, I'll get back to this, the whole idea of slow, which is totally the Kremlin narrative that was planted in the Western uh, collective media and mental place. Uh, but... Uh, actually, on September 22nd, there was a second attack on the uh, Russian Navy headquarters, uh, which completely damaged it. It's a Russian Black Navy fleet. Um, and uh, they have destroyed the building and most likely killed Sokolov, who was the head of the Russian Navy. Since then, there was this ridiculous video that Russians have released where a person visibly dead is sitting and not moving. And Russians are very good at it. And they never acknowledge that their generals or their commanders are killed. Uh, and this person did not appear in public after that. And I just had an interview with the uh, press secretary of the Ukraine 
Ukrainian Navy. Uh, it will be coming forthcoming on um, the Malcontent News this week. Um, it, it was very, very good way. He explains how um, the Ukrainians using uh, their missiles, using the new low-range and high-precision uh, weapons that they got from the West, and using their own drones, they they have developed underwater drones and all sort of drones. They have the the whole army. Um, they uh, destroy the Russian fleet, which has definitely lost uh, the capacity. And also, they are now um, afraid to approach. Uh, the, before you could see them from Odessa, you could see them on the horizon, and now they're just hiding in the base, uh, and they 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 lost their capacity, they lost their air defense when the uh, Russian cruiser Moskva was downed. There was a major air defense resource. Uh, there are also things that people don't pay attention and don't understand, but there are things like uh, the uh, telecommunication towers of Boyko uh, in, in the in the Black Sea, uh, which were recaptured, and Russians were doing their reconnaissance and intelligence work from that. They lost this capacity. But most importantly, the logistics chains, that's what I hear from every intelligent, good analyst. It's all about the logistic chains because sure. once the Ukrainians have the long range uh, weapons, they the Russians cannot approach their their targets as close anymore. They have to retreat. So, like um, again in the Black Sea, there is a, a place called Kinburn Spit, uh, which is a very very fine thin spit, like a peninsula uh, that goes very close to the uh, Ukrainian-controlled town of Ochakov. And so before they were able to pummel it with whatever they wanted, because it's very close. But now with this long-range weapons, the Russians can't do it anymore because they would be destroyed. So at best, they can just do a little dance when they pull their artillery there and then immediately retreat. It's very hard to do it in the sand, uh, and especially with bad weather conditions. So once they don't have the ability to get as close to the front, they start losing. Right. And that's that's when the Ukrainians will systematically use the long range, high precision HIMARS, which they already have, and then ATMS, which which will make it even easier. Uh, and the, the, and also, you know, you have to understand, again, I'm not a military expert. I'm just a person who spent two years here. And every child here knows what I'm telling you. But when that's why I love interviewing uh, militaries, you know, on, on, you know, from the States, British ones, and here in Ukraine, because they actually know what's going on. Right. And they explain it very, very well. And once they explain it to you, you understand that the whole concept of the speed of counteroffensive is really not even applicable here especially when the front line is so extended right yeah no that makes sense um you know you talked about the the psyop and that uh, uh, earlier that you know hitting Kherson and and the things that they're doing is part of a, a, a psyop i think the psychological impact of of hitting sevastopol where the the russians have had a fleet in the black sea for a long long time because they leased it from ukraine before the war even started so they've they've been there since i, I don't know for 
a long, long time to have that sort of stronghold penetrated and, and, and these ships go down and their naval leader or admiral or whatever he is killed is a big, is a big deal. I think, I think that sends a message like, Oh shit, we're really in trouble. They're hitting our, yeah, it, our uh, fortresses now too. Um, yeah. I think that's what we're going to have to, you know, look for uh, going forward. So um Tell us about the the malcontent news in your podcast, and do you have like um, interviews lined up now down the line? You mentioned one that was that was going to drop this week. Yeah, well, I have an editor, so ultimately they decide. But I have a pretty good control over it too, which I like uh, so far. So good, I like most of the things about it, uh, and the quality is very good. You would appreciate it. They they are very good about like no hissing, no popping. You know, <laughs> I don't pay much attention to it, but it is important. Um, and so it was very hard to get this interview because uh, the it's press secretary of the Ukrainian Navy. I, I just I just met him before he he was that working in the field and it goes a long way, especially when you're here in the country for a long time, you know, just come and go like a tourist, like people start to appreciate what you do. Uh, and that that I, I really enjoyed it. I had to translate it uh, from Ukrainian into English and uh, the the power was down and the internet was down when I was interviewing him. So it wasn't an easy process. And there was a lot of shelling. Like, uh, because I'm here in Kherson, I have all these adventurous podcasts. Like, uh, one of my interviews was interrupted by the heat in our yard. So the, the glass flew in the window where I was sitting. So I had to stop. And I had to continue with this interview about the uh, Polish-Ukrainian relationship in a different location. And it's like the story itself is adventurous. And for as much as I can say, I include it, you know, because we were a bit hunted here and I had to change locations. Yeah, but there are also, you know, voices from the ground I, I meet a lot of people who speak English and also I translate. By now I speak Ukrainian somewhat decently. I even uh, was um, presenting on the Ukrainian television in Ukrainian, Greg. That was shameful, but they were very graceful about it. And I, I understand it and I somewhat speak it, but there's ways to go. Uh, but when it comes to interviewing, I, I can do it, no problem. So there, that's an interesting one that I recommend. Uh, and they're like all kind of experts. I'm trying to find whatever is happening to find a person who's an expert in that field. Um, like when there was the scandal with uh, Yaroslav Hunka with the SS, uh, 98-year-old SS uh, that w- was given a stand innovation in Canada. In Canada, sure, yeah. So I'm actually looking forward to interviewing someone this week uh, who is a historian in Canada and an expert on uh, Russia and Ukraine who has a good sound view on this whole shameful experience, let's <laughs> put it this way. Um, yeah, so, you know, something that is happening, but also something to give a broader context, something to bring voices from Ukraine, because I'm not a Ukrainian voice. I'm based in Ukraine, and I have a weird accent, but I am not a Ukrainian. I'm an American journalist who never got rid of the accent, folks. I don't have, oh, there was an attack on me. You would like that. There was an attack. I do, on I do not like an attack on you. I would never like an attack well, on you. That, that, that was on, uh, on the internet. We oh. all experienced that. 
That was on my Wikipedia page. Where That was very smart. I have to give it to them. Where they fixed it to make me look like a Russian writer. Well, I don't, as you know, I don't write in Russian. I don't have anything any anywhere close to written or published in Russian. The closest I had was a translation of a story from English in a Kiev magazine, uh, in a Ukrainian magazine. So, I, I, I mean, if anybody would look into that, uh, and I didn't see it because I don't have a habit of looking at myself, you know, like on the web. It just came up randomly. And I, I was shocked because that is very, actually very serious because, you know, uh, this country is at war with Russia. If anybody actually believes I'm Russian, they would kick me out of the country. That yeah. was a very smart attack. Now fixed. But um, so that was apropos me not being a Ukrainian either. Yeah. I, I am really an American. So uh, my the way I see my role is to bring to the audience, the global audience, not just in the West, Ukrainian voices, as many as I can. Well, you do a great job with it. And I have to say, you know, the podcast is really nice. I you did for years, you did it, you know, the 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 literary series uh, at the bookstore in San Francisco. And you're such a good interviewer. You're so smart and you ask such good questions. So it's really nice to see you doing that. I'll be, you know, I would. I think we would all say we would all rather be talking about literature than um, cities being wiped off the face of the earth. But um, it is nice to see you back in that element because I think you're really good at it. And uh, you know, you just you 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 make you bring the proper gravitas to it. I guess you know you treat it with the 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 respect that it needs and uh, and the intelligence that it deserves. And uh, you know, it, it's good. It's a good thing. Um, I learned from the best, Greg. I learned from the best. I learned from you. No, the best no, 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 no. You, you, you were doing that before. I, I <laughs> but thank you. Um, so, okay, we're coming up on time, and I know it's very late there. So, I want to, I want to ask you one more question before uh, you, I release you to go to sleep, try to sleep with the bombs going off. Um, I shouldn't even joke about that. It's really just I can't wrap my mind around that. That's the only way to cope with <laughs> about it. Like today, Greg, can I tell you? Briefly, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I was working all day long on the article and something else, and then I just I I need some air. Yesterday we were out in the field all day long, and today, so I step out, and there are two grandmas sitting on the bench. One is with a little doggy, and then there's another neighbor sticking out from the window on the first floor, and the glass is broken. There's like. Hey, Lucia, you need to tie yourself up to this bench because when the shockwave comes, you're going to fly into my window along with this bench. <laughs> That's it. It's the gallows humor. It is the only way I think I think to cope. I say from the comfort of upstate New York, far, far away from the from the front, you know. Um, so, OK, this is my question. Now, you we've been talking about Ukraine and Russia and the tensions for, you know, two years now, something like that. You and I, um, because you know, you really saw this coming and, and were afraid that it was going to happen. You know, you, you saw the signs leading up to it. So um, I watched you reporting on it from San Francisco where you were monitoring the telegram channels. And I saw when you, uh, you know, originally managed to get to Ukraine and, you know, and I've watched you now sort of with awe um, cover this whole thing for as long as you have. So I guess my question is, you know, Looking at it now, it's been two years almost of of this thing that's happened. What has changed about it for you in your mind? Like your, what am I trying to say here? How has your view of of war, of this particular war, of the of the people involved? How has any of it changed? How have you changed? A nice easy question to send you off with. 
Now, speaking of people asking good, deep, hard to answer <laughs> questions, uh, change that's well, I mean, of course, everything has changed because before I, I've seen a lot of crap in my life being from the Soviet Union and you know, with immigration and all that, but I've never experienced war firsthand. I lived with the knowledge and the transgenerational memory of the war because all my ancestors lived and some died and perished during World War II, some in Ukraine and some in Russia. But I personally have not experienced it. And I did not imagine as like you or anybody else living somewhere in San Francisco, you, you, you watch a movie, but you don't watch yourself being a part of it. And um as we were driving yesterday through some very bad roads with the black smoke coming up supposedly from aerial bombs and the GPS signal was lost because it jammed there. So we didn't know where, where we were. Uh, and there were four blog posts and we were stopped at every single one and interrogated. And as we drive, like I tell my colleague, uh, Paul Conroy, with whom um, and other uh, team members we made under the deadly under deadly skies, formerly known as Eastern Front, and we're here, by the way, making a new movie, making a film about Kherson. And I said, like, well, it is like being in a in a f movie. And he goes, like, well, it's a shit movie. <laughs> and that's what I can tell you. I mean, I'm quoting people today, but I'm out of words. It's a shit movie, and I wouldn't wish on anybody to be in it. On the other hand, the war, the book I'm reading, you know, we are into books, you and I. So this is a book I have been reading, among other, and it's called The War is a Force That Gives Us Meaning. And it's a very interesting book by Chris Hedges. I don't agree with everything. And he's been at it, a war correspondent for 30 years. He's been through every single war. And it's an interesting read. It's like, it, you know, it's very hard to come back to peace from the war because in the war, everything is black and white and there's good and evil. It's, it's like Lord of the Rings, you know, yeah. there are orcs on the other side of the river. And here it's a shire and some people are shit, but, you know, it's basically good. And we're fighting the orcs and, you know, it's easy. And then, and, and it's dramatic, but then things are not as easy that, and dramatic and black and white when you go back and things are mundane. And uh, when I went briefly to America to attend to some logistics, it was hard. It was, I was annoyed at things because they were meaningless to me. And I'm concerned I, I will need to do more therapy. I'm doing some already. I need to rethink everything. And I will be rethinking everything. But on the other hand, what do we do as, as humans or other, as writers? We're just rethinking everything every single day. And if we stop rethinking everything, we just go on. Yeah. No, you're right. You're right about that. I'm glad I'm glad to hear you're in therapy. I'm glad to, I worry about you. I really do. I I because you're, you know you're way out there um in a very dangerous place and um i just have so much admiration for what for what you've uh you're doing and all the work that you've done um i think you're doing great reporting and and 
you know, valuable from a, I mean, from a historical standpoint, not just from the day to day, but, you know, people will look back on this years later and be able to look at the work that you have provided, uh, you know, to help tell the story and these stories that otherwise might not get told. So, um, you know, I think you're doing uh, great work and, uh, you know, really, I'm just in awe of, of every time you come on. It's just like, I can't well, believe you're same. out there doing the, the, the stuff that you're doing. So. Thank you for your support, Greg. I really, really appreciate it. I really appreciate uh, your support. I'll be support. I wouldn't be able to to do what I do without it. We will all need each other, and Ukraine needs us. These people here need it. It's we're not doing it for our own sake. It's not like some touristy trip or in self examination. I'm not in a ashram. Uh, the thing is, you know. They ask, they, these people here, they come to you and say, please tell them, tell them what's happening. And with a message like this, you know, it's very hard to say, no, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to do something. I'm going to write my novel, right? Yeah. That, that's meaningless. <laughs> so, you know, this one thing leads to another and we, we all, I mean, trite as it is, perhaps, but we all do need each other in this world to survive. So, I mean, it, it's this time of the uh, night where I start speaking in cliches. So I better <laughs> get over here. Tell, tell everybody where they can find you because you're still on the, the, the hell site known as Twitter. Oh, well, yeah. you whatever the hell that that thing is turning yeah. into, like now all I I don't know about everybody else, but every second tweet I see is from Elon Musk, and I never subscribe to the fellow as far as I'm concerned, and still, so I hope other people uh, see other things. Um, they can find me at Zarina Zabriski, Z A R I N A Z A B R I S K Y, and I share most of the things there, but also the malcontent news, which is my new job. Uh, so far, is very, very reliable, good source with daily reviews and interesting interviews. Uh, I still write for Byline Times, uh, and I, uh, there's a film that we made. Uh, which is called Under Deadly Skies and also known as The Eastern Front. It won very many awards by now and has been taken to many festivals. Uh, and soon there will be another documentary and I will share it with everyone. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for, for coming on the podcast today. It's always great to see you. Always great to see that you're okay. Um, please stay safe. Serena Zabriski. Thank you, Greg. Veil theme song is by Matthew Fossa. Serena Zabriskie, Marie Cast, and Martha Acuna provided the introduction in Ukrainian, French, and Spanish, respectively. Voice talent is by Stephanie St. John and me. Thanks to Allison Gill, Molly Hockey, Kenai Williams, Kimberly Johnson, and everyone else at MSW Media. If you'd like to support this program, get three friends to subscribe. The more downloads I get, the better the show does. You can also subscribe to the 58 the live YouTube show I do with my friend Stephanie Koff, a.k.a. LB. Tune in tonight for your Friday night hang. Most importantly, please subscribe to the Prevail Substack with updates every Tuesday, Friday, and Sunday. Your $6 monthly or $55 yearly subscription funds my work on the column and the podcast. Visit gregoliar.com to learn more. Thanks for listening. Drive safely. Be kind to each other. Try and enjoy yourself. And until next time, we shall prevail.
M S W Media.